0: And If you would, please uh, be seated. And Last week, Isabel brought us through the first part of Acts chapter 12, and Isabel, as you could tell last week, he was reveling in the fact that he had this passage that uh, there was so much fun in it. He, he had adventure, he had a jailbreak, there was suspense, there was humor, and all this kind of stuff. And this week, I'm choosing three words to sum up this last part of Acts chapter 12. I'm going to choose politics, parasites, and progress. And obviously, the first two words, politics and parasites, they're not real engaging words, unless I was going to promise to say, I'm going to tell you how to avoid both of those things, but I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do is by the time we finish looking at these few verses at the end of Acts 12, I do want to take those first two words, politics and parasites, and exchange them for something better. And then we are going to hang on to the word progress, because that is a great one. So, as we Look again uh, at verse 20 as we pick up this story. Isabel left off last week. He taught us a lot about the nature of Herod Agrippa, but we're going to look at, at verse 20 as, we, as Dan read a few moments ago for us. That um, It says, Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and, and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. The he that's referenced in the beginning of this is King Herod, Herod Agrippa, as Isabel taught us last week. Briefly on Herod, he was the consummate uh, negative example of a politician. Uh, He's the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod that most of us think of and know of from the Christmas story that he's a different Herod. Uh, just a quick snapshot of just how his life informed how he rolled. Uh, he had watched as his grandfather, Herod the Great, not literally watched, but he knew that his grandfather, Herod the Great, had put his own dad, uh, Herod Agrippa's dad, Aristobulus, to death. So father put son to death. This is something the grandson sees and realizes, I really need to pay attention to how I do life in my family. Uh, and he became a guy who, throughout his young years, he he would get into a quarrel with one person in their family or one friend. He'd scratch somebody else's back to get him out of trouble there. He went into debt. He borrowed money to pay off one debt. Got somebody else angry at him. He was constantly making deals. Constantly doing life like this. Uh, Fell out of favor with one emperor. Was thrown into prison. Rescued by another one. When he sees that emperor Caligula begin to go into insanity. He becomes friends with the next guy he thinks is in line. And sure enough when Claudius becomes emperor uh, he's rescued once again and Claudius was the Roman emperor who put Herod Agrippa into the position we see him in here in Acts 12. And as we pick up the story this week, uh, I just want you to get a sense of uh, what goes into that first phrase there. Now he was angry. He was already smarting because of what we heard last week as Isabel taught. Uh, He was a guy, again, crafty, consummate, negative politician. And he knew that In ruling over the the land of Israel as a Roman, he had to make uh, people happy and he dealt with the ruling Jewish class of Pharisees. And as he weighed out the political advantages of, do I I favor the Pharisees or do I favor this upstart sect of Jews who talked about their Messiah being raised from the dead, Uh, he realized, these people have nothing to offer me. They weren't interested in making bribes to grease the political skids. Uh, They cared more about their own people than pleasing um, any Roman political figure. They weren't going to give praise to the Roman emperor. They were going to praise their God. He's going to make the deals over here with the Pharisees. And so he has James executed. He throws Peter in jail. And on the day that he thinks it's going to be one of these great days for his political life, Peter's gone. He's escaped. There's this hurried investigation and... Nobody can find Peter. So the guards, as Isabel said last week, the guards inherit the sentence of the prisoner. Peter was sentenced to death, so the guards are put to death. And on what should have been a great day for Herod Agrippa one day, he wakes up. It's a mess. And so this closing line of verse 19 uh, says that he went from Judea to Caesarea. He's leaving Jerusalem, uh, leaving probably with a lot of embarrassment, a lot of frustration, He goes to Caesarea, and as Luke picks up this story, uh, we know that he's angry now with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We're not told why he's angry in verse 20, and it doesn't really matter. What we know is that these people from Tyre and Sidon knew he was angry, and they also knew something else really important, and that is the fact that Herod had control over the food supply that they need. And if you go back to, and we won't read it on the screen, but if you were to check back at the end of chapter 11 in the book of Acts, and I'll reference this again, there's a a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus had predicted a great famine. And that is why Barnabas and Saul left the city of Antioch. They were taking a gift from the elders to the church in Jerusalem. And so if you think about all that's happening historically right now, Um, that this, probably we've seen signs of this famine beginning. These people from Tyre and Sidon, we don't know why uh, Herod's angry, but they know Herod's angry. They know also he's got control over the food supply. So, politics begins to happen here. Happens, uh, we're in the midst of it right now in 2016, uh, but we're also seeing it 2,000 years ago. And so, this delegation from Tyre and Sidon, they realize they just can't go to Caesarea and and drop in on Herod Agrippa. So they get connected to this guy, Blastus, who's the king's chamberlain. He's part of the inner circle, and uh, a guy who probably, because he was so tight in that inner circle, he knew how to make deals. And when they say, having won over Blastus, as Luke records in the text, that's a nice way of saying, more than likely, they probably bribed Blastus to get in to see Herod Agrippa. Uh, Blastus, his name, I I asked myself, why does Luke name this guy? And I can't say this for sure, but the word Blastus, his name, means a shoot or a bud, like a a plant. If you think of the main stalk of a plant, a little bud growing off the side, a little shoot coming off the plant, that's what this guy's name means. And in some ways, it sounds as though Luke is just maybe playing a little bit with that name and saying he, he was a lot like his main supporter, uh, Herod Agrippa. He was a deal maker. And so these people make a deal to get in to see Herod. Uh, And they get what they want, and they get this delegation. So we get to see this little bit of political maneuvering happening 2,000 years ago, so they get what they want. They get in to see him. And this is where the story takes a really wild turn, and we get to our second summary word of Parasites. It says, on an appointed day, Herod having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died." Eaten by worms and died, that's not nearly as exciting as last week's prison escape, is it? It's like kind of gross. Uh, But here's what's happening. there are two Caesareas in the Bible, in the New Testament that we read about. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is an inland city. Uh, The Caesarea we're dealing with here is Caesarea Caesarea Maritima. It was a city that was built, again, by Herod the Great. It is right on the Mediterranean Sea. And if you were to travel to Israel today, you could still visit. You can see an incredibly well-preserved amphitheater, You can see a huge section of an aqueduct that still remains. You can see the breakwater that was built to create a harbor that was one of the most amazing in the natural world, and all these other buildings. So it was was the seat of Roman power in the land of Israel. This is where Herod Agrippa left. When he left Jerusalem, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed, he's frustrated. This is where he goes. Probably felt a little bit more like home. And it's the place that, like a lot of the building that the Romans did, it evoked their power their authority. This is the backdrop to when he goes and takes his seat on the rostrum. He was probably in the middle of this huge stadium that was built, and as Luke describes it, um, he takes his seat and he begins this address, and the people begin to laud him as a god. Now, this is a good time to share with you the fact that uh, Luke is not the only historian who writes about this. Uh, There's another one, a a significant name that I do think is is a good name for followers of Christ to know of, and that is the name of Josephus. Uh, Josephus is actually a Jewish man. He was born Joseph ben Marityahu. Now, if you're going to look for him in the Bible, you won't find him in the Bible. Because what we're going to talk about here for a moment is what we call an extra-biblical or non-biblical source. Joseph ben Marityahu, or Joseph son of Mattathias, was a Jewish guy. He was born a Jew. He was actually a Pharisee who went to war against the Romans. And uh, when he realized he was about to get captured by a Roman general, Vespasian, he claimed to have a vision that Vespasian was actually the Messiah. And when Vespasian heard about this, he thought that sounds pretty cool. I think I like this guy. And so he makes this guy Joseph, son of Mattathias, his interpreter and his slave. Eventually, he actually Vespasian actually becomes the emperor. And when he becomes the emperor, he frees Joseph, son of Mattathias. Joseph then changes his name to Flawius, Titus Flavius Josephus, and we know him now by the name Josephus. He went on to record all of this history of the Jewish people, and his writings have become one of the most important non-biblical sources that help us understand a lot about the historical accuracy of the Bible, helped us understand a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which also confirm the historical accuracy of God's Word. Uh, helps us understand just a lot about the political and uh, cultural atmosphere of New Testament times. And so I want you to take a look at what Josephus wrote about this. Uh, this is a fascinating uh, piece of the story. He actually wrote in, in far more detail than this, but it's up on the screen. This is what he writes. Now, when Agrippa came to the city Caesarea, there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made holy of silver, and of a contexture truly wonderful. and he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, "One from one place and another from another, though not for his good. There's a little foreshadowing that Josephus throws in here though not for his good, that he was a God. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. For you students, when your teachers are teaching about grammar and run-on sentences, this is why, by the way, uh, that's, a, that's a painful one to read. it nice to have a couple of, uh, break that one up a little bit more. Josephus goes on to say this, Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life, while providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me. And I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. And when he had said this, his pain was become violent. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being in the 54th year of his age. Someone who has, again, Josephus never features in Scripture, so it's an extra-biblical source. But if you were to to read uh, the works of Josephus, you find that his history lines up other places' history and helps us understand what we call the historicity of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible and what Luke has written. I think what matters here, Luke, remember, is a doctor. And so Luke gets very clear about the cause, the specific cause of death. He says he was eaten by worms, which is probably a a general way today we would say parasites, uh, which still take the lives of people here in 2016. You can find evidence of that in the news. But Luke makes it also very clear, if you pan back a step, uh, there was something more going on than a man who was Struggling with parasitic worms that were eating him alive. Uh, He says, There's an angel of the Lord that comes and basically says, Enough. Enough. Because you refused to submit to God and give him glory. You took the glory that belonged to God. And so there's that larger cause of death that Luke writes about. I want to pause here and look at two elements of the circumstances of Herod's death because I think there are two things important for us to learn from this passage. The first one deals with the, God's sovereignty and power. We live uh, in the shadow of the fall of man. And again, anytime you were to look at any headlines, and this past week is another one, you read the headlines and it would give you cause to question God's sovereign power over the affairs of mankind, but I want to step back because Luke is basically saying to us, God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. An angel of the Lord struck this guy down. I remember years ago uh, at the Ridge at our other building on the west side of Carrollton, one time Jerry was preaching, and this, this uh, verse from Psalm 115 was part of what he was preaching, and I've always loved this simple summary of God's sovereign power. Uh, he said, but our God is in the heavens." And he does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115, verse 3. And you can go all over the place throughout the scriptures to see examples of God's sovereign power. But I want to take us on a little detour this morning because it's important, I think, for us to recognize the power and sovereignty of God. And although I could back up this psalm in many, many places, I want us to take a look at the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel records this piece of a prayer. And he says... Uh, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. So Luke and Daniel are saying the same thing in different ways. Now, the reason I chose the book of Daniel is because you not only get Daniel's words as an outsider, so to speak, someone who's looking at a situation and casting judgment on it, so to speak, but as you trace through Daniel 2, 3, and 4, those three chapters, we're going to hear the words of someone who actually experienced God's sovereignty firsthand, and that's the king of Babylon, king named Nebuchadnezzar, a name probably familiar to many of us in here. If you go on to chapter 4, this is the experience of Nebuchadnezzar. The king, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, says, reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Well, the very thing that God promises is exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar is driven away. Uh, he goes through this period of time. And as you continue to chase, uh, trace through chapter 4, verse 34 and verse 37, this is what, and now we get it in the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself. He says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He goes on to talk about what's been restored to him. And then in verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar lived the sovereignty of God in a very real way and if you accept as accurate the words of Josephus uh, in terms of what he claimed that Herod Agrippa said in that last moment of his life. Remember he said actually providence uh, has thus reproved me. He said I am being commanded to leave this life. If you accept those words as accurate, Herod Agrippa also realized at the, the final moments of his life, there is a power above me that has control over me. I thought I was it, but I'm not. It's the same thing Nebuchadnezzar realized. And it might be easy to think when we're talking about kings, powerful, wealthy ancient kings to think these are anomalies, these are, these are examples that exist outside my sphere of, of understanding, because it just seems like they're so far removed from our lives today. And yet the reality is their experience with the sovereign power of God still speaks to us today. And it's part of, to me, the significance of this passage in Acts 12 that Luke is expressing for us, that, yes, God has power over Herod Agrippa He is a sovereign power, Um, but we also need to submit to that sovereign power. It is just as true for our lives and station as it would be for an ancient king. So I think that's an important element that Luke is sharing with us in these circumstances of Herod Agrippa's death. But I also think there's another one. Uh, As Luke highlights the circumstances of Herod Agrippa's death, there's one that's not quite as obvious and blatant in the text. Herod Agrippa was focused on pleasing men, on on consolidating his wealth and his status and his power and protecting those things. And while he's doing all that, he's literally being eaten from the inside out by these parasitic worms. I would suggest to you that in some ways Herod's death and the circumstances surrounding it uh, remind us of a basic condition of our lives. And I'm not talking about physical health now, but I'm talking about a deeper health of our inner life, our inner spiritual life. That as we come into this world, we're born into it with a sin nature, with evil desires. And some of you know uh, I love words, I love the background of words. I looked up the word parasite, it comes from a Greek word that means someone who eats at another's table. It talks about someone or something that profits at the host's expense. The parasites that killed Herod Agrippa, they were given life. They profited at the expense of his life. And I would suggest to you that the sin and the evil desire that lives in us does the same thing. It profits at the expense of our life. I like how James puts it in chapter 1 of his letter to the early believers. In verses 13, 14, 15, he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. He said, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I've always liked how the NIV puts it, and it's up there on the screen underneath. This is verse 15. Uh, In the NIV, they say, Then after desire or an evil desire has conceived, It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Years ago, I still remember this. I was reading um, a Christian author, and he described this what James writes here as sin's family tree. Sin's family tree. That it begins with an evil desire. Evil desire gives birth and has a, a kid, so to speak, called sin. And when sin grows up, it then has a kid, so to speak. And that kid is named Death. And I know it sounds weird to think of giving birth to Death, but this is the reality of life. And I think uh, we're reminded of this in so many words. It's interesting to me today that we still have a lot of people who would say the idea of sin is just that. It's an idea. It's antiquated. It's outmoded. It's outdated. Um, We have other people who would still say today, and I'm stunned, every once in a while I'll meet someone like this, who would say that man is innately good, that we have no need of a savior, and I'm not sure, and I've wrestled with people on this on a couple occasions in my life. Help me understand in your worldview how you would say that mankind is good when you read the headlines that we see. And one of these places where I think the the sum total of the story of this book that I hold in my hand uh, accurately and adequately sums up the way our world works. Uh, Yes, mankind is born in the image of God. The the Scriptures tell the story that we are created in the image of God, uh, that God gave us stewardship over this world. He said, I want you to go and bear my image to this world, make culture, create, take care of it. And we see early on in the story that sin enters in. And as that happened, God did not simply say, I've had it, I'm done with it. He says, I'm going to pursue these people, I'm going to make them my own. And though God has always been engaged in human history, he enters it in a unique way in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was like us in every way except one in that he was sinless. And he died. He rose again uh, with this claim that in doing that, he could open up the path. And we sang of it this morning. We could know the Most High God. He could remove the specter of death from this world that that is the story of the scriptures. That is the reality of the scriptures. It's not a story in the sense of fiction. And we have this issue in us as human beings, this thing in us, this sin nature, these evil desires, that if we don't find a cure for them, so to speak, uh, they will rob us of the life God intended. And death is the outcome. Herod had something in him that even 2,000 years later, parasites still kill people. For all of our medical advances, 2,000 years later in 2016, parasites can still kill people. And for all the other advances of human culture in the past 2,000 years since this story was written of Herod's death, uh, there is no cure for the evil desires of mankind except for the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think in many respects... Though Luke's first purpose in writing to Theophilus, who's the recipient of this letter of the book of Acts, was to help him understand the history of it all, I think, again, there's this symbolism that stands in the circumstances. Here's a man who is so caught up in his outward appearance while ignoring the inner life and health. um, It's a risk that still exists for us today. And I think given the reality of that, it makes the next sentence all the more significant. Because Luke reminds us of the power and the reality and the truth of God's Word in verse 24, this simple sentence that we're about to read. Uh, But the Word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. It's such a quick, easy sentence, but it is so deep and so rich with so much meaning. I want you to see that in these next few moments. Following Herod Agrippa's death, uh, he had one son, who was left behind. He was only 17 when Herod Agrippa passed away. And I think the fact that Luke begins this sentence with the word but. He said, it would seem like a good news thing that this evil, ruthless tyrant, as Isabel called him last week, was removed. But there was a power vacuum because the emperor Claudius felt like, you know, for a a region that is so difficult to rule and manage, I'm not going to turn it over to a 17-year-old. Uh, They didn't call them teenagers back then, but basically he was saying this is too much for a young man to deal with. So, Claudius placed the land of Israel under direct Roman rule at that time. It was the first of a number of decisions he was going to make in the next few years that would ultimately bring war between the Jewish nationalists and the Romans that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is the first of those many decisions. So, there's this time where... Uh, There's a power vacuum, uh, now direct Roman rule, which was frustrating for the Pharisees and the others. Uh, There was also, remember from the end of uh, Acts chapter 11, that there's a famine that has started. There's all this political and economic uncertainty. And in the midst of all this, Luke says, but the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. And there's two words here that I think are important to use. The first is this word grow. Luke uses this wonderfully multi layered Greek word, oxano, to describe grow. And I say multi layered because it's a word that can be used for so many different things. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see it refer to the growth of infants, you'll see it refer to the growth of seeds, the growth of plants, you'll see it refer to the internal spiritual growth of a believer, and it can also mean, like it could here, increased, and multiplied. And then the second word, to be multiplied, is just a single-use word. That's the only thing it means. It's talking about the exponential effect of something. So that if I go and share something directly with Kevin, and Kevin goes and then shares it with two other people, and then those two share it with two other people, you have this exponential effect going on. But I think Luke is showing us something so important, and that is, in the word grow, It begins with growth in the lives of individual believers that the word takes root and grows in them before it's ever multiplied and increased numerically and geographically. I also think it's powerful that, uh, again, in this simple sentence, we've got the work of something that Jerry introduced us to earlier. He he talked about the no-namers in the book of Acts, that the book of Acts has a lot of places where the no-namers feature people. We don't know their name and yet they were instrumental. And if you stop and think for a moment about this simple summary, how how many stories are told in that simple summary? How much prayer went on? How many instances there were where someone cared for somebody else? Somebody took time to share what God had been doing in their life? How many moments where someone stood up in a public square to speak about the good news of Jesus Christ, how many moments there were where there were private conversations. I'm fascinated by wondering how many stories go into that simple summary, but the word of the Lord grew and multiply and the work of these no-namers and these stories that on this side of heaven will not be told. But how many of those have been rejoiced over in the heavens for the past 2,000 years because of lives that were changed and rescued. It's amazing when you begin to think about it. And what I think is also a beautiful thing, uh, for a chapter that begins uh, where the church is under threat, James is executed, Peter's imprisoned, it looks like the church is under great threat, by the end of this chapter, we see the words of Jesus Christ coming through and coming true. And the words I'm reflecting on here are from Matthew chapter 16, uh, when Peter first confessed Jesus as Messiah, and Jesus goes on to say that he will build his church And that the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome or overpower it. And this hit me last week when Isabel was teaching about the first half of this because we get to see this literally and figuratively in this chapter. Literally, there's a gate last week that Isabel talked about. It was the gate that was designed to hold Peter in a prison so he could be executed the next morning. And that gate was opened. It could not overcome or overpower the prayers of God's people. It could not stand, and Peter was freed and escaped. And there's a very literal example of the words of Christ coming true, but also figuratively, in the sense of the gates of Hades refer to the power and the authority of our enemy, Satan. And in many respects, uh, Herod Agrippa was the representative of that in this chapter. And again, as we see the removal of this evil ruthless tyrant bent on destroying the church, uh, he's removed. And even though it casts the political and economic situation into all this uncertainty, which you would think that the enemy would love, he wants to keep us fearful. He wants to keep us doubting. He wants to keep us thinking that we are not cared for in this world. And yet, the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. It could not stand the gates of Hades could not stand against the power of God's word in the lives of the body of Christ. And so we see the reality of the words of Jesus coming through even in this chapter, literally and figuratively, as the gates could not stand against it. It's a beautiful picture of God's authority and power. And we also see it in the closing verse of this chapter, verse 25. It seems like this add-on, tacked-on verse that might not make much sense. But again, it's further witness to the reality that the gates of Hades cannot overcome or overpower God's body. Uh, And it's this, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. It appears from the text that Barnabas and Saul had been in Jerusalem the whole time uh, all the persecution was going on. Again, I referenced this earlier. At the end of uh, chapter 11, we're told that there's going to be this famine, and the elders in the church body at Antioch say, we need, we need to care for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They get a gift together, and they send Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem. This is their mission that's being referred to here. They go to Jerusalem to bless and care for the church there. More than likely, uh, they're there the whole time this is happening. And we don't know if Herod knew they were in town. We don't know if he had plans to try and and do something with them, but it's important that we realize they come back with John, also called Mark. This is the same John Mark whose mother Mary had the home we heard of last week. This is the home where all the believers were gathering to pray for Peter. So if nothing else, I think it's quite reasonable to conclude that if nothing else, Paul and Barnabas, by the fact that they had John Mark with them, they knew what had happened to Peter and James. Uh, I think it's also quite likely they might have actually been present at Mary's house praying along with the rest of the body of believers for Peter. We don't know that for sure. But the key thing that we do see that Luke makes clear is that they fulfilled their mission. They fulfilled their mission. The body of Christ in Antioch prayed, they talked, they discussed, they acted on something to bless others. And again, in the midst of all the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem, the gates of Hades could not overcome or overpower the work of that body. Barnabas and Saul were able to fulfill their mission. And as they do that, it now sets the stage for the next chapter of growth in the the early church. And as we'll pick this up again next week in chapter 13, we're going to see a very new period, a new phase begins to happen as we wrap up this morning I said uh, three words to me a simple summary of this section we see politics and political maneuvering we see the presence of parasites that took a man's life and we see progress I told you I was going to swap out two words so I want to start with the word politics in place of politics I like for this story from Acts uh, to remind us to replace politics with hope in the sovereign God replace politics with hope in the sovereign God. Now, I want to pause for a moment and say this, and I'm not crazy when I say it, but I do want to just say, uh, I don't think politics is a bad thing, okay? Don't hold that against me. I don't think politics is a bad thing, and here's why I want to just make a point briefly. If you turned on a faucet this morning to get clean water, or if you drove here this morning on a maintained road that had traffic signals and traffic signs, uh, much like I did, and I think I probably just described every person in here with those two simple examples. You and I are beneficiary, uh, beneficiaries of political decisions. The fact that we can turn on a faucet and get clean drinking water, the distribution of that resource, there's political decisions upon political decisions upon political decisions that get to that point. Uh, the fact that we have laws that allow us to move freely around in terms of the flow of traffic and everything There's layers upon layers of political decisions. There's politics that stands behind the distribution of resources and the enactment of laws, and we benefit from those. So I'm not gonna say to you that I don't want to come off as someone who is a political cynic. Politics is not a bad thing. It can become a bad thing because it involves compromise. And that's where it has certainly, even when it works well, a lot of frustration for us because compromise means we've gotta give up something we value. Uh, and certainly because it involves compromise, it's ripe for dishonesty and corruption and the worst of the stuff that we tend to read about. Uh, But having said all that, I want to come back and say, even when politics is working well, when we're fully uh, enjoying it and think it's great, or if it's at its worst and we're seeing the worst and ugliest face of political action and decisions and thought, I think it's important to replace politics with hope in the sovereign God. It's a theme throughout the book of Acts. It's a theme throughout the Bible. And that we can confidently place our hope in the God who gets the final word, who has the final authority, and who desires and can take any situation to turn it around for His glory and for our good. I think it's important as tomorrow uh, we're about to step into the first nominating convention for the Republicans in Cleveland. Uh, A week from now, a week from tomorrow, we'll step into the second one for the Democrats in Philadelphia. And then, as you know, as well as I do, we're going to shift into overdrive and political coverage. I think it's so important that we remember uh, our salvation, our deliverance will not come from a political candidate. It will not come from a political party. It comes from the sovereign power and hand of God. And so, may we be a people who echo the early church by praying, by praying for our political leaders as we've been instructed to do in Scripture, rather than complaining or moaning or saying that we're going to move to another country if that person wins or whatever it might be. Our political leaders are not gods any more than Herod Agrippa was a god. And so, we're foolish if we expect miracles from them. Even this morning. As I was reading the the Sunday paper, I just started trying this a little bit. And wherever I saw the word political or politics or politic, I just thought to myself, hope in the sovereign power of God. And it gave me a different perspective on how to view everything that's going on. So replace politics with hope in the sovereign God. In place of the word parasites, I'd like first to remember the power of God's word, which changes our lives for good from the inside out. Uh, As I said, this story features the work of many no-namers, and they are people who let God's Word shape them from the inside out. We don't know their stories. We don't know their names. But the Word of God could not have spread numerically and geographically unless it had started in their life first. People who submitted to the reality of truth in this world that we have a sin nature in us, and we've got to address it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then his word living in and through us. Habits were changed, ways of thinking were altered, thoughts and words and deeds were run through a different grid of consideration. I think of the the way the affections of their heart would have been changed. You think about all that would have happened in terms of the individual lives of believers and the importance of the the corporate support and accountability they had in their local bodies. they were a people focused on bearing witness to God's work in their lives. And again, even this, reading the paper this morning, I saw this phrase again, the culture wars. Uh, both our secular media and even evangelical media outlets have made a lot of the culture wars of today's world. I don't think these early believers would have thought, we're in a culture war and we've got to win it somehow. They were focused on bearing witness, being witnesses rather than winners. And I would challenge us again, it begins with, And I need it, as well as anybody, this reminder. I've got to be consuming this Word and letting it shape me from the inside out. If not, uh, I have a parasite in me that is going to profit at the expense of my life. That sin nature and those evil desires. Um, This is where we address those. And finally... Building on the reality of hope and the fact that God's Word changes lives from the inside out, I want us to hang on to the word progress. We're not swapping that for anything. Hang on to the word progress. Because the beautiful thing and what I love most, I think, about the book of Acts is that the story's not finished. Uh, It finishes, I mean, Luke's writing, his story to Theophilus finishes in what we would now call verse 31 of Acts 28. He didn't think of it that way. His writing finishes to Theophilus, but the story is not finished. And you and I are still writing it today. And so as we rest in the power of sovereign God and that hope, uh, and we let God's word work in us, it is to do something, to be active. I want to finish sharing uh, these lyrics from a song written by Matthew West. And this is not the entire song, but I love this picture that he presents of some of the frustration that can hit us. Uh, Doubt will creep in. Fear will creep in, frustration will creep in, but listen to this. He says, I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now, thought how we'd ever get so far down. How is it ever gonna turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist at heaven, said, God, why don't you do something? And he said, I did. I created you. It's a beautiful song if you go and read the rest of the lyrics or if you look it up this afternoon and listen to it powerful call to action that for us to bear witness to be difference makers in this world and to further encourage you on that i'm going to close with just a brief story that's often caused me to reject passivity and reject frustration i call it the starfish story i have no idea if this is true or not but here's the picture there's been a storm on the coast and a beach is littered with thousands and thousands of sea stars that have been washed up from this terrible storm. And this guy wakes up one morning and he sees this little kid on the beach and the kid is picking up a sea star, starfish, and he throws it back in the water. And he goes and scoops another one up and he throws it back in the water. And this guy is watching this little kid do this. And when he gets there, he's like, son, what are you doing? This kid says, if I don't put these starfish back in the water, they're going to die. And this guy looks one way down the beach, hundreds and hundreds of sea stars littering the beach. He looks this way and he says, son, he says, you're never going to make a difference. You... No way. And this kid just ignores him and scoops up another one, throws it in. And he looks at the guy and he goes, it made a difference to that one. And I've loved that story. I remember the first time I heard it. But it has stuck with me all these years to reject doubt, to reject fear, to reject passivity. God created me just like he created you. And he redeemed me and redeemed us that we would know fully what it means to bear his image to a fallen world. And as you read the words to the headlines, it's easy to get frustrated and think, how could I ever lean in and help there? React to what's around you, in your family, in your place of work. Realize we have the opportunity to make a difference in that moment, in that time. Uh, we are part of, I think, in many respects, the no-namers whose stories, as God blesses and works through us, through His Word in us, um, will make a difference. I recently read another line, and as we close, uh, it's that we come together as a church body to be not only restored, but to re-storied. To tell again the story that we live uh, the truth of God's Word.